Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, a changing stance on Gaza. We need to see Hamas lay down its arms. We need to see it release all hostages. Canada votes in favour of a ceasefire, but why support a UN resolution that fails to condemn Hamas? We'll speak with Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray. And... I was very disappointed in the vote at the United Nations. I, I don't think it was consistent with the statement we issued yesterday. Division within government ranks will tell you why some Liberals are disappointed in the decision to back a ceasefire. Plus... The conservative lead shrinks. Are Liberals making a comeback in the polls? We'll speak with David Coletto of Abacus Data. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. A UN resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza is proving to be divisive here at home. After weeks of arguing Israel has the right to defend itself, the federal government decided to support the ceasefire resolution breaking with Israel and the United States, who both see a ceasefire as an opportunity for Hamas to regroup and stage another terrorist attack. Take a listen now to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau as he defended the decision to back a ceasefire. In the face of an unfolding humanitarian catastrophe, we continue to call for a return to humanitarian pauses. We're going to keep uh, participating in urgent international efforts towards a sustainable ceasefire. But it cannot be one-sided. We need to see Hamas lay down its arms. We need to see it release all hostages. We need to see it stop using civilians as human shields. And there cannot be any future role for Hamas in the governance of Gaza. To discuss the situation, we are now joined by Bob Ray, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. Ambassador Ray, thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Michael. You know, historically, Canada has been one of Israel's more reliable allies. Are you at all concerned that by supporting this call for a ceasefire, Canada might be damaging its relationship with Israel? Um, no, I'm, I'm not. I do think that the ties that bind us to Israel are very strong. I do think those those ties are strong enough to uh, to allow for a, a difference of opinion, if, if that's what exists. Um, historically. Canada has always taken some positions with respect to two states. Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu has taken a different view. Um, we've taken a strong view on settlements, which um, the current Israeli government disagrees with. So this isn't the first time we've, we've had a, a difference of opinion. But the, the key thing about our relationship with Israel is that it's based on the strongest conviction on the part of Canadians that the state of Israel has a right to, to exist within secure, recognized borders, that it has a right to security, that it has a right to defend itself. And nothing that we've said uh, or done yesterday, the vote in favor of the humanitarian ceasefire, takes away from those basic principles, as I tried to make very clear in the statement that I made yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, but the resolution uh, that, that was adopted yesterday, it does not condemn uh, Hamas for its attack on Israel on, the, on October the 7th. 
Is that at all being tone deaf to the pain many Israelis and Jews really around the world are still feeling as a result of that terrorist attack? Absolutely. And that's why we tried to amend. We've tried to amend the resolution three times um, in the last, each time the resolution has been presented, we've tried to amend it. Um, we, we believe very strongly that we need to continue to fight for a resolution of the assembly that reflects the, the truth. The truth is that Hamas, Hamas's attack on the 7th of October was, was an appalling, uh, horrible atrocity that the strongest measures have to be taken uh, against Hamas, uh, and that everything that can be done should be done uh, to make sure that Hamas pays the price for these crimes against humanity, which they have committed. Um, there are many other places and fora and ways in which Canada will continue to explore and to, to carry out um, the, the, the steps that we think need to be taken against Hamas. Um, so I, I regret profoundly the fact that the General Assembly did not by a two-thirds vote, although it did by a majority vote, vote in favor of the three amendments that have been put to it. But that fight's not over yet. That, 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 that argument will continue. We're not dropping the argument at all. Okay, not dropping the argument, but still uh, taking up the cause of the Palestinian people who uh, you are expressing concern by supporting this resolution. We're taking up the cause of humanity to say that when you have a humanitarian crisis uh, and when you have people put in as vulnerable position as the people of uh, Gaza have been put into, um, we, have to, we have to respond. We can't just say, well, um, there's a conflict, there's nothing we can do. Um, we, we believe strongly that uh, Hamas has to pay the price for what it's done. But we also believe that the, the price of defeating Hamas, which we want to see done, can't be this level of suffering on the part of the civilian population, which does not support Hamas. And we've seen this before in the other attacks on Gaza. There's always this dilemma. The dilemma is created by the fact that Hamas has completely intermingled itself in the infrastructure of, of, uh, of, of Gaza. But now when we're told, as we've been told by the UN, by the Secretary General, by everyone who's working in Gaza, that this situation is intolerable, that people are suffering, that people are dying, and that we have to do more uh, on a humanitarian basis to respond, uh, Canada, Canada says, yes, we do have to. And we accept that not everybody will be happy with that decision. And I can tell you and whoever is listening, it was not an easy decision. It was not a decision that the, the prime minister made just, uh, you know, saying, oh, let's just do this. Or that. It, was, it was deeply discussed. It was, it was weighed very carefully. And what I believe was the most important aspect in the prime minister's decision were, were two things. First of all, that, that we have to respond to a humanitarian situation uh, when we're given as much evidence as we've been given. And second, the status quo is not working. And we need to find more durable political solutions. 
And that's in the long-term interest of Israel, as much as it's in the interest of the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. Now, the United States, uh, as you well know, they, they vetoed a UN Security Council resolution last week. It, it, too, was on a ceasefire. And the argument that we continue to hear from the Americans is that any halt to the fighting would just allow Hamas to, to, to regroup and stage more terrorist attacks. Is that a concern by supporting this resolution? I think any argument that's made by the United States is one that we listen to with great respect. But I think the the the, the question that we have to we have to ask ourselves is, um, it's a ceasefire that applies to all parties. It's not a one-sided ceasefire. Um, it, it, we do believe that that every public interest will be served when Hamas stops fighting, when Hamas gives up uh, gives up its, uh, its 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 arms. But we have to we have to also ask another question, and that is, in, in the interests of, of of getting to that objective, how many innocent civilians uh, are going to die, and are we really going to say or do nothing about that, and say there's nothing that can be done that's just collateral damage? Um, I, I don't accept that argument. I, I think we've we've uh, seen over the last sixty days uh, an extraordinary level of uh, of um, weaponry used uh, in, on Gaza, destruction of most of the civilian infrastructure, hospitals, schools, whatever. Um, real difficulty in getting humanitarian assistance. At the beginning, no electricity, no water. Finally, we get the lights turned back on and we get the water flowing, but slowly. Uh, no fuel for things. We have we got to look at this situation in a way that responds in, to realistically to the level of humanitarian suffering. And I, I think that's something that we have to be aware of. Mm -hmm. So so a, uh, an eye on the huma humanitarian price being paid here. But you know, the vote, uh, the adoption of this resolution, it does isolate the United States on the issue of Israel and Hamas. So, so to that, I'm wondering what type of reaction you are hearing from the Americans on, on this issue in yesterday's vote. I, the reaction that I've, I mean, I haven't received any, <laughs> no emails, no reaction, but we deal, we deal with everybody on a daily basis. I, I think there will be uh, d continuing discussions between Canada and the United States as to how we go forward. Uh, the president is in touch with, uh, with Prime Minister Trudeau. Um, the Minister of Foreign Affairs is talking to Secretary Blinken. Um, there's a lot of work being done between us and the United States and all the other allies. Um, the G7 countries are divided. The G20 are divided. Um, NATO is divided. Uh, there are many NATO countries which came with us this time to agree. Others abstained. Um, it's a it's a reality. People are 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 affected by this. They respond in slightly different ways. But to suggest that if you abstain or vote against that you're not concerned about the humanitarian situation, I would never make that accusation. I think it's important for us to respect one another, and that's the way we carry out our diplomacy. It's respectful. It's a, a good, healthy dialogue. We've had lots of discussions with people before the vote. We had many sharing of views before the vote. Uh, we had many exchanges, meetings, and discussions. Um, everybody's facing this conflict, and everybody's troubled by it, and I think we, we shouldn't exaggerate the impact of, of one particular vote, except to say that I think it was a move that the government of Canada felt it was necessary to make for the reasons that I've given. Mm -hmm. You talk about impact, and of course, a resolution from the Security Council is legally binding. A resolution from the General Assembly is not, though. So what impact do you hope yesterday's vote will actually have? 
It's an expression of opinion. Uh, and that's important. It's important for the General Assembly to play, to play its, its, its role. Um, and it's important for the General Assembly to express its view uh, when the Security Council is unable to reach agreement. We've seen this in many different elements because the Security Council has a harder and harder time coming to agreement. So uh, that's the reality of the situation. The General Assembly you will find and you've found over the last several years on Ukraine, on Syria, on a number of issues, when the Security Council is stuck, the General Assembly has a, res has a responsibility to react, and that's exactly what we're doing. Now, the resolution that was adopted yesterday, it also calls on all parties to comply with international law. So, so I'm wondering, uh, Ambassador, do you think the International Criminal Court will have to investigate when this is all over any potential war crimes that may have been committed? Well, uh, that's not up to me. That's up to the prosecutor. Um, the prosecutor, Mr. Khan, has been in the region. Um, he's spoken publicly about the fact that he is he is gathering evidence that he's looking at everything that's happened from October 7th on. That would include the uh, behavior of Hamas and then the response uh, from the Israelis and the, and the degree of compliance with international law. So uh, it's not for me to second guess what the ICC prosecutor could do. It's important to understand that the, the state of Palestine, as it calls itself here at the UN, um, is a is a uh, an active participation in the participant in the work of the of the uh, uh, the ICC, and they have they have they have said legally they've said to the ICC we give you permission to investigate. Um, obviously, the prosecutor can't get into Gaza at the moment. Uh, difficulty gathering evidence there. Um, uh, the Israelis have indicated their opposition in the past to the uh, prosecutor exercising jurisdiction. But this is, I think it's very important for us to respect in the, when I was premier, you remember that, Michael? Mm -hmm. uh, the attorney general didn't come to me and say, you know, what do you think, should I lay a charge in this case? That would never happen. It would never happen that, that a politician would, would say, lay a charge in that case or this case. It's not for me to say. Uh, and I'm the, for another Two days. I'm the vice president of the of the Assembly of States Parties of the of the ICC, and as in that role, I would I wouldn't dream of telling the prosecutor what to do. Uh, but I I do know what the prosecutor is doing because he said it publicly. So there are issues there that the prosecutor will will explore. It'll be up to him to decide what he's going to do and how he's going to respond. Mm -hmm. Now, before we're done, uh, Mr. A, I do, do want to ask you, though, uh, because we've heard it from the Prime Minister, we heard it from the Foreign Affairs Minister, st still this talk of eventually this has to end in a two-state solution. Is that still viable, given, given the violence that we've seen over the last many weeks, the, the, the distrust that Israel has expressed in officials in Gaza, is a two-state solution still possible? Uh, well, I certainly hope so, uh, but I think, apart from hoping, I think the thing we need to realize is that um, the Palestinians um, have rights, and the Palestinians um, have a right to self-determination, as all peoples do. The, the Palestinians uh, have a right to a democratic life. They've been, not, been denied that by virtue of the terrorist forces that have been in play in Gaza uh, and because of the ongoing challenges on the West Bank. Um, but 
we we have to find a, a way forward to to respond to this simple uh, test, and that is that you, you can't have part of a, a country democratic and and another part that another another world that is not democratic and not allowed where people are not ex allowed to express themselves and to have uh, to have their own state. Um, I, I think when we when you come down to looking at how this can be done, it's obviously there's been many efforts to get there. Each one has foundered, but I still think we have to keep working at it. And and that's why I think part of what the prime minister and, and both and Madame Jolie have talked about is the need to get that longer term political perspective on the table. And that's something that we're very much committed to doing. And I think you're going to see more more countries working with us working together to try to get to that to that point where a dialogue is possible but i can't pretend that it's easy and i think it, it isn't you can't have a democratic state living side by side with a state that's run by by terrorists so there's a lot of steps that have to be taken to make sure that uh, whatever you do it's not the product of a political theory it's the result of of compromise and the result of the political will of a democratic people, and and that's something we have to we have to work at. Uh, uh, but I don't think it's a problem that you can just continue to kick down the road and say, well, that's for another day. We'll worry about that later. Um, we've tried kicking the can down the road for quite a while, and it hasn't served us well. And I think we all have to understand that. And that's one of the reasons why we need to work harder uh, on getting to two states. Ambassador Bob Ray, I always appreciate the time. Thank you for this. Thank you, good to talk to you. And you. Bob Ray in New York. Well, the UN resolution on a ceasefire was also discussed on Parliament Hill today. Take a listen to some Liberal MPs who spoke in favor of the resolution and the change in direction of government policy. I think when you take a, a, a principled position, it may not satisfy anyone, right? Because there are very strong emotions on both sides of this conflict, and understandably. Look, there have been horrific tragedies both in Israel uh, and in Gaza, and the fact of the matter is, is that people have very real feelings about what is going on. Violence is not an answer. We have to put an end to this violence and the killing of the innocent civilians. We have to make sure that we are there for children. If we cannot protect children, I've been questioning myself, who are we if we cannot protect the children? I support the, government, the Canadian government's position. Um, I think that um, since the beginning, our Minister of Foreign Affairs has said that we uh, support Israel's right to defend itself. We, uh, we expect the hostages to be, that the Hamas has taken to be released, um, but also that the way in which Israel uh, prosecutes this war uh, is important. And, um, and we have to be conscious of the impact this is having on civilian life. But there is also dissent as some Liberal MPs are expressing their concerns about supporting a call for a ceasefire in Gaza. I do not support an unconditional call for a ceasefire. I don't believe the majority of my constituents support an unconditional call for a ceasefire. And it's my obligation as an individually elected MP to speak out when I think that Canada has abandoned its traditional position at the UN of support of Israel at a time when Israel's at war. The UN resolution, in my opinion, fell short in the following ways. 
It did not condemn Hamas to the extent I think is necessary and legitimate. It did not lay down as a condition for a ceasefire the need for Hamas to lay down its arms, immediately release all hostages, and to stop using innocent civilians as human shields. To me, that is an important criteria that was not listed in the UN resolution in terms of what needs to be present in order for uh, me to feel comfortable in uh, putting my support behind uh, a, a call for uh, an overall ceasefire. And of course, we will continue to follow the issue right here on Primetime Politics. While Liberals may see a glimmer of hope in new research from Abacus Data, for most of the year the party has been trailing Pierre Polyev and his Conservatives. And with each poll this past autumn, we have seen that Conservative lead build. But for the first time in weeks, that lead has actually shrunk, with Conservatives dropping five points nationally and Liberals benefiting from that drop. Well, with more, we're now joined by David Coletto, the founder, the chair, and the CEO of Abacus Data. David, good to see you. Good to see you, Michael. Now, you say uh, that you have observed a, quote, st a statistically significant shift. What exactly are you seeing here? Yeah, as you said, we've seen a, a five-point drop in Conservative support over the course of two weeks. We finished this survey uh, just yesterday. We've got the Conservatives at 37. They're down from 42 at the end of November. The Liberals are up four. They're at 27. Um, up from 23 with the New Democrats at 19 unchanged from our last survey. Now, it's still a conservative lead of 10 points, which is which is a large lead. But um, just two weeks ago, our last survey had the Conservatives ahead by 19 points, and that was the largest lead we have ever measured for the Conservatives. So certainly something has happened in the last two weeks that has caused this big shift, and uh, um, it's, it's one of the biggest shifts we've seen in a long time over the course of two weeks. Okay, so something has happened. Do you know what that is? Is this a response to liberal housing policies, uh, environmental policies? W what's behind this? Well, I think it's actually more to do with the Conservatives than the Liberal government, because when you look at questions we track, things like how people feel about the Prime Minister, how they, you know, the approval rating for the government, even whether people think the country's headed in the right direction or the wrong direction, all of those are really unchanged over the course of the two weeks. But we have seen a three-point increase in those who say they have a negative view of Mr. Polyev, the conservative leader. And I think that's an indication that this is more about perhaps some of those past liberal supporters who were looking at the conservatives or a group that I call soft change voters, those who want a change of government but aren't comfortable with the alternatives. I think many of them had gone to the conservative uh, side over the last few months um, maybe something that the Conservatives have done, maybe voting against the Canada-Ukraine free trade agreement, maybe the filibuster at the end of last week, something has spooked some of them uh, back to the Liberals. And so that's why I think we've seen this, this shift in this, this closing of the gap between the two parties. Oh, okay, so, so a, a judgment on Pierre Polyev, if you will. What about the Prime Minister? Has his numbers changed at all? They really haven't. We've seen a slow kind of improvement, uh, one or two points every few weeks, but the vast majority of uh, of people haven't changed. Uh, more, Far more say they have a negative view of the prime minister than a positive one. So he remains, I mean, these numbers are still challenging for the liberals. I mean, they may be feeling a little bit better uh, about where they stand relative to the conservatives, but those fundamentals about the prime minister and about other things uh, haven't really changed all that much.
Yeah, his negative numbers, as we're looking at your, your board right now, his negative numbers still uh, outweighing his, his positive numbers. So talk to us about the kind of challenges or opportunities that creates then for, for both Pierre Poliev and Justin Trudeau. Well, I think for, for Mr. Poiliev, who's you know been riding high for, for many months now, uh, our polls and others have been showing big conservative leads. His, his positives had been trending upwards. He had, I think, a really good summer and early fall where he was advertising and really introducing himself and perhaps reintroducing himself to many people. I think it's an indication that um, you know that maybe they're getting a little bit cocky, right? And, and that when they get off of their core message around affordability, around housing, which are the top two issues that most Canadians say they care about, uh, they, they perhaps could get into a little bit of trouble. So there's there's something here about staying focused on, on the things people care about. For the Liberals, I think there's there's an indication that when they're able to and they start to to push back on, on Mr. Polyev and the Conservatives, that there perhaps is some opportunity. There's an ability to bring some of those voters who voted Liberal in the past, maybe today say they, they want change, aren't, aren't satisfied or, or that excited about the Liberal government, that maybe they're able to, to, to get some of those voters back, even if they're saying, I'm still not thrilled with the Liberals. Um, ultimately, I, I believe that you know change alone is not sufficient. You've got to want, there's got to feel that there's an alternative that, that you feel comfortable with. And, and making that case against Polyev, you know, you hear the prime minister talking about him being reckless and risky. Uh, those are all kinds of language that I think the liberals are trying to, 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 to frame um, Mr. Polyev around. And perhaps this is just one poll and we'll have to see whether this trend kind of continues. But if if that if this poll continues to show this this kind of deterioration in conservative support, it's an indicator that it could be working. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to see how the Liberals uh, continue their, their, their push back to, to the Conservative uh, campaigns and to the Conservative arguments. But, you know, before you're gone here, there are a couple more points I want to raise, because what's interesting as well is that you're not seeing any shift of NDP support whatsoever. What does that tell you about the challenges that presents for Jagmeet Singh? Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, um, we, we had noted earlier this year that a lot of uh, past New Democrats or a sizable portion were going to the Conservatives um, and they were gaining some Liberal supporters, but it was netting out really that they weren't seeing much, they weren't benefiting all that much from the decline in the Liberal numbers. I think for the New Democrats, mission number one remains relevance, right? And I think they had some good news this week with the with the dental care plan announcement. And, you know, you had Don Davies, uh, the MP from Vancouver out there, you know, taking credit for that. I think they've got to continue to demonstrate their relevance in this parliament. And because um, that that remains their their number one task is is why vote NDP in the future and, and what's the point of having a lot of MPs in that House of Commons. Mm -hmm. uh, now, uh, the last question, because you, you did reference this idea of whether this is a blip or a trend. We're, we're now in this last week, uh, sitting week of Parliament before it breaks for Christmas. They won't be back until the end of January. When might there be a, a, a follow-up poll that, that might indicate whether or not this is a trend? Well, I don't know if any of my colleagues, other polling firms are going to do any for, you know, you may see one or two before the end of the year. We're, we're not planning to do any more. So we'll have to wait to see, you know, after people get together over the Christmas or holiday season and, and, and sort of perhaps talk politics, although I don't know if everyone wants to do that, whether <laughs> these numbers kind of continue into the new year. Um, but I do think that that this is a clear indication that anyone who thinks that Canadian public opinion is firm and that, that people have made up their minds already you know, as we start 2024, which will be obviously a really important setup to whenever that next election comes, 
I think it's an indicator that uh, there's a lot at stake still and people are still still open-minded about the choices in front of them. David Coletto, always appreciate the conversation. And since you raised it as well, uh, happy holidays to you. You too, Michael. Take care. You too. Take care. Well, before we go tonight, we also want to acknowledge a historic deal that was reached at COP28 in Dubai today. Nearly 200 countries signing on to a plan to transition away from coal, oil and gas. Now, the language is not as clear as some had wanted, but it does, as the EU's climate commissioner put it, signal the beginning of the end for fossil fuels. Take a listen now to the president of COP28. Together. We have confronted realities and we have set the world in the right direction. We have given it a robust action plan to keep 1.5 within reach. It is a plan that is led by the science. It is a balanced plan that tackles emissions bridges the gap on adaptation, reimagines global finance, and delivers on loss and damage. It is built on common ground. It is strengthened by full inclusivity, and it is reinforced by collaboration. It is an enhanced, balanced, but make no mistake, historic package to accelerate climate action. And we'll have more on that story for you right here on Primetime Politics later this week. But for now, that is our program on this Wednesday. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here on CPAC, thank you for watching. Up next, Estebejan avec l'Essentiel.